All right, good morning. Welcome to Open Acre Church. I'm uh, thankful to be here with you today. And, uh, you know, what we're here to do is to worship Jesus. And our, our forms and our formats, our schedules, those are all negotiable. What really matters is that we have a time to come and to turn our hearts and our attention to, to, to King Jesus and to worship Him. And if at the end of the day we can say, we in spirit and in truth worship Jesus, that's what matters. Um, all the other stuff is negotiable. Uh, if you've ever been on a mission trip, you maybe knew that you, you heard that the, uh, the motto of anyone going on a mission trip is, it's Latin, Semper Gumby. Means always flexible, right? Simper Gumby. I don't know if Gumby's Latin, but anyway, I heard that a lot, and so I said it too when I was a youth pastor. But anyway, so today, Simper Gumby, right? Always flexible. Uh, hey, we're jumping back into our teaching series called Rock of Ages today. Rock of Ages. This is our, oh, I don't know what, 32 week learning adventure with the Apostle Peter. We spent the first eight or nine weeks uh, learning about who the Apostle Peter was and his interactions with Jesus and how those uh, shaped him in the with God life. Uh, and then we got into his letters and that's where we are now. We're in the first letter uh, of Peter, 1 Peter, uh, and we're kind of listening closely to what's going on because in context, Peter was writing to a people who were living in difficult times. People living under oppression, a, a persecution uh, under uh, Nero, uh, uh, Emperor Nero's um, uh, bloody regime. And so they needed the encouragement that Peter could bring to help draw their focus to the right place. And as we read along with that first century audience of our brothers and sisters, we hear timely lessons for ourselves. We need to be properly oriented, focusing on the right things, listening closely to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit as we live during our days, in the time we've been given, in dark and perilous times. And so I think there's good things to be heard, uh, good things to be uh, internalized, as we read Peter's letter. So today's message, this is week 13 for those keeping score. Uh, today's message is called Future-Oriented Creatures. Perhaps you've heard me say it before, but us, us human beings, we are naturally future-oriented creatures. We are naturally looking into what's next, looking ahead to what comes next by nature. Um, we remember the past, yes, our past informs who we are and informs how we think oftentimes, but day by day we are inevitably living into the future. We live our days in anticipation of, a, of future events. You'll make decisions today because of what you know or anticipate is going to happen tomorrow, right? As kids, we order our entire year around what? Christmas. I mean, everything happened in my life around like, well, when's Christmas? It depends. Do I want that now or do I want to wait till Christmas? Um, as adults, perhaps it's vacation or retirement. As students, maybe it's summer break or graduation. You know, our parents did not have to tell us that we ought to be thinking about future events. It just came naturally. We figured it out on our own. That impulse, it arose within each of us all by itself. So here's the takeaway. You will live today to some degree in anticipation of tomorrow. You will live today in anticipation of tomorrow. Do you agree with that statement? 
Does that resonate with you? You say, yeah, that's me. That's me. I'm living. Sometimes I actually miss what's going on right now because I'm too much uh, caught up in thinking about tomorrow. But anyway, you will live today to some degree in anticipation of tomorrow. Uh, the example I'd like to use, which goes well because um, I want to talk about long-distance trail running. Uh, many of you know that I do long-distance trail running, but did you know that my wife went out and stomped out 33 miles of trail running yesterday. She did her first 50 kilometer trail run at this trail race that my son and I were helping direct yesterday. She's a machine. She did eight laps on a 4.1 mile trail and she demonstrated mental toughness, resolve, and uh, just strength that was amazing to me. So I want to talk about long distance trail running, but know that we've got more than one long distance trail. And my brother-in-law did 4.1, my son-in-law did 4.1. 5.2 miles, sorry. Did you take a wrong turn or something? Did you get lost? Anyway, uh, I do long distance trail running mostly for fun. But each year, each year mostly for fun. Some of it's for therapy. But um, each year, uh, I put together a race calendar. This is what I did this week. This is my race calendar for from tomorrow all the way up till the end of October this year. You can come look at this. It's pretty amazing, right? Uh, but this is my race calendar uh, for the year. It has several races on it uh, that I'm interested in doing. However, there's only one A race. There's only one like most important race on my calendar, and that would be the one that is situated right there. The very last date on this calendar is the 100-mile race that I signed up for at the end of October. So, I put together a calendar each year, and there's always one race that orders and informs all the other things that I'll be doing during the year, including the other races. All the other trail races I might do in the year are arranged around that big race, or that A race, that 100 miler, and subsequently, all of my training, all the other running I'll do throughout the year is aimed at that one race. I will run approximately 1,800 miles each year. Um, I'll spend over 200 days a year running some distance. Um, basically in training for this one day in which I will attempt to run 100 miles. Attempt, because I've become kind of proficient at DNFing uh, 100 mile races, which means did not finish. I get pretty far into them and then something happens like we crash the crew van and search and rescues activated, things like that. But you know, I'll attempt a 100 mile race. Throughout all four seasons, I'm out running four days a week, usually logging between 30 and 50 miles a week just to prepare for this one day, for this one event. When race day comes, I hope to have had the discipline, I hope to have put in the miles, and I hope to have strengthened my resolve enough to endure and to finish the race. Awareness of that future event orders, it orders and informs all that I'm doing now. So like I said, on my schedule, it starts tomorrow and stretches all the way till October 28th. Awareness of that future event, it orders and informs what I'm doing now. The commitment I've made to that future day motivates and compels me to act and to live in a certain way every day so that I can be well prepared. So in 1 Peter, 
1 Peter chapter 1. Today we're going to look at verses 13 through 21. Here, the Apostle Peter calls all who are following after Jesus to live holy lives. He calls us all to holy living. He instructs us to think clearly and to exercise self-control because why? We belong to Jesus and we are called to pursue holiness in anticipation of his return. Almost everything Peter is talking about is oriented against the backdrop of the assumption that Jesus is coming soon. Jesus will return, and ours is to be ready to welcome him with every aspect of our life, to live in anticipation of Jesus' return. As Christians, we ought to be the most future-oriented creatures of all. We should have the most uh, grand vision and the most uh, intentional living toward that future event of Jesus coming back and bringing with him our blessed salvation. In light of Jesus' imminent return, we are to live our days now pursuing holy living, mindful of the ransom Jesus paid for us, uh, mindful of the ransom paid by Christ to save us from sin and empty living, but eagerly awaiting, eagerly awaiting his coming to us and making all things new as he promised. So let's look in our Bible at 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, and let's read 13 through 21. A call to holy living. So think clearly and exercise self-control. Look forward to the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time as foreigners in the land. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But he has now revealed him to you in these last days. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God, and you have placed your faith and hope in God because He raised Christ from the dead and gave Him great glory. So let's break this down into little bits here, okay? Into sections. Let's look first at verses 13 through 16. So think clearly and exercise self-control. Look forward to the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. So, those who belong to Jesus live every day now looking forward with joy and confidence to the gracious salvation that Jesus will bring when he is revealed. Now, the language here can be tricky. The language here says when Jesus Christ is revealed, it doesn't mean that he's absent. Okay, it doesn't mean that we're here and he's far away, hard to contact, hard to be in, in fellowship with. It doesn't mean that he's absent from our world, but more like that he's standing behind a curtain. 
Like he's waiting for the curtain to raise and to reveal him to the world. Does that make sense? It's like when you're sitting in the audience at a play in an auditorium, you hear stuff, you see stuff, you see the curtain maybe moving, you know it's there, it's just hidden from view in a way. And as soon as that curtain's raised, you're invited into that reality. Yours and that, what's happening on the stage and uh, what's happening where you are become united because the curtain is raised. Well, hear that. When Jesus Christ is revealed, it's more that he is to be unveiled. He's, to be, uh, he's not absent. He's about to be revealed. The curtain is about to be raised. It would be more accurate to say when Jesus Christ is unveiled to the world. Now, this is encouraging to know. That Jesus isn't just sitting up in heaven watching us fools fumble around down here. Like, oh man, <laughs> sorry dad. These guys, right? <laughs> You're right? Yeah. No, it's, it's helpful to know that there's not this distance, this separation. He is actually with us in and through his Holy Spirit growing us and guiding us here and now. That brings great comfort to me because sometimes I am a fool fumbling around down here, but it's nice to know that Christ is with me, indwelling me through His Holy Spirit to, to guide me and to grow me, to help me see the error of my ways and to help me more faithfully pursue that holy living. Perhaps it's helpful then to imagine that Jesus Christ is standing nearby you too. That Jesus Christ is standing nearby you too and He is uh, cheering you on. He's cheering you on. He desires you to grow. He desires you to become all that God has promised you can be through Him. He is with us as we pursue holiness. We're not sent out on this fool's errand. He's out there. Uh, we've been given this task. We've been given this call. But then He's there to help us through the Holy Spirit to empower us and make that possible. He is with us as we pursue holiness, helping us to avoid slipping back into our old ways of selfish living. And He is empowering us to live a life that honors God. Is that reassuring? That God's not standing back with a clipboard just watching you and grading you, like, eh, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure if you're going to pass because you're not demonstrating enough good stuff in your life. Now, how gracious and compassionate is it that he's like, hey, I want you to live this way. And guess what? I'm going to make it possible. I'm going to help you do something in your life, realize something in your life that is indeed impossible for you to do on your own. But I'm going to make it possible and I'll be glorified in you. Man, that's reassuring. That's comforting to me. So that was verses 13 through 16. Let's look at verses 17 through 19. And remember that the Heavenly Father, to whom you pray, has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do, so you must live in reverent fear of Him during your time as foreigners in the land. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. The ransom He paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Now, this passage maybe raises some misunderstandings in your mind. Maybe it touches on some things you're like, wait, what? A little question mark, like PowerPoint guy, like jumps up above your head, you know? It's like, wait, what, what do you mean, Peter? Well, look at this in, in, in the first part of verse 17. Uh, and remember that the Heavenly Father, to whom you pray, has no favorites. What? I've sung a lot of songs that make it sound like I'm God's favorite. You know, when he hung on the cross, he thought of me above all. Right? I mean, I thought I was God's favorite, right? Anyone else? You know, uh, so maybe this runs into that. But here's the thing. Yes, God loves you uh, extravagantly. But he loves, as a good father, he loves 
all of his children, and he loves us all the same in Christ. As a parent, we reflect this impulse to love all of our children equally. I mean, true, you love each of your children in their own way, but you love all of your children equally, right? So we reflect that impulse, that nature of God. We don't play favorites because each one belongs to our family. Each one of our children belongs to our families. And it would just be kind of wicked to have favorites, right? It just feels wrong to say, oh, no, no, this child of mine is my favorite. The rest, mm, second class. This one, though, is the best. That's a recipe for disaster. That kid's going to be a monster, and it's going to wreck your other kids. So just pro tip. Um, <laughs> We don't play favorites because each one of our children belongs to our family. And simply, why? Because simply, they are, simply because they're our kids. Because my children are my children, none of them have to earn my love. By the very nature of them being my children, being part of my family, I am naturally inclined, given to loving them. Uh, so that's the first objection. Wait, I thought I was God's favorite. No, no, no. God loves all of his children just as much as you. The second objection would come from 17b, the second part of verse 17. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. He will judge you or reward you according to what you do. Well, what, what kind of objection could this raise? Well, wait, I thought it was all about grace, man. Why are you talking about judgment? You talking about God's trying to judge me? <laughs> we don't do well with judgment, right? I thought it was all about grace, man. Yes, but obedience matters. If we belong to the Father's family, we must live under the Father's authority. Right? You can't say you're part of His family if you're not willing to live under His authority. If He's not going to be your Father. If we belong to the Father's family, we must live under His authority, we must follow His house rules, and we must work toward the well-being and the harmony of that family. The children must increasingly bear that family resemblance. They must bear the Father's likeness more and more in how they are living, the decisions they are and are not making. How they live their life must look more and more uh, like their Father. It must be more and more in alignment with His will, as expressed to us in the Word, as expressed to us in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's all about grace. Grace is amazing. Grace is overwhelmingly uh, good. However, our response to that is one of what? Obedience. Obedience. So guess what? There's a third possible objection here in the third part of verse 17. Let's get a running start at it. It starts with, And remember that the Heavenly Father, to whom you pray, has no favorites. Hmm. He will judge you or reward you according to what you do. What? Third, so you must live in reverent fear of Him during your time as foreigners in the land. Fear? Wait, I, I thought it was all about love. I thought it was all about love, not fear. Why are you throwing fear in there? That makes it seem like a bunch of fundamentalists, right? I, wait, I thought God was all about love, not fear. Yes, but to see Him is to die. I mean, think about encounters with God. I mean, like God had kind of a thing for Moses. Moses is like, hey, I'd like to see you. He's like, Haha, you can't. You catch a glimpse of me, you would die. That's just the way it is. You can't. You can see my, me as I pass by, but you can't see me and live. I mean, something about God and His holy nature is uh, overwhelmingly uh, powerful. It will kill 
us. It's like the guy in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark that pulls the lid off the Ark of the Covenant and looks in and his face melts and like his eyeballs pop out and stuff. I don't think that's really what happens, but that's what comes to mind for me. Uh, when the presence of the Lord is right there, it's overwhelming. And to see God is to be unmade, to die. So something about God engenders fear, a holy, reverent fear necessarily. In ourselves, we can't see God. If we did, none of us would survive that encounter. But Christ is the one who opened the way to the Father, and He mediates between us and Him, and He gives us right standing in His presence. Through Christ, we are able to be in the living presence of God and not be destroyed. Through Christ, He mediates, He clothes us in His righteousness so that we are welcomed and we are at home in the presence of Almighty God without being destroyed because of Christ. Jesus is the example for us, but He is also the goal toward which all God's people are to strive. So, Jesus is the example set for us. He is the uh, goal toward which we are to live. We are to live more and more like Christ. If we don't know anything else to do, look at Jesus and say, what did he did? Uh, what did he do? How did he live? What did he prioritize in his values? And his what did he prioritize in his interactions? Do those things, and I don't think you will get too far astray. Jesus is our example, and he is the goal toward which all God's people should strive. We order our lives around what pleases the Father. We order our entire lives around what pleases the Father. We are conformed to Christ Himself, knowing that Christ is perfectly pleasing to God. Okay, how do we know that we can follow Jesus' example and that will lead us into righteousness? Because Jesus is perfectly pleasing to God the Father. God is well pleased in Jesus. So let's be like Jesus. Thus, so while we live, we live as foreigners in the land. We are preparing ourselves for life in the kingdom. We are preparing ourselves for life in that new heaven and that new earth that Christ is bringing to us. We spend our days being outfitted by the Holy Spirit for life in God's family. Did you know that's what the time we're given is about? So that we can be formed, outfitted, so that when Christ comes, when that glorious salvation comes fully and finally to us, we will feel like, ah, yes, I have found my true home. I'm home at last. This is where I was made for. This is what I was made for. We didn't even know it, but here it is. And finally, I am at home. So the time you've been given during this time on earth, your life is for you to be formed and fashioned, to be outfitted for life in the kingdom for your place in God's family. That's encouraging to me. In light of Jesus' imminent return, we are to live our days now pursuing holy living, mindful of the ransom that Christ paid for us in saving us from sin and empty living, but eagerly, daily, eagerly awaiting Him coming to us, His return, when He will make all things new. Amen. Having expressed then why we are to live holy lives, Peter moves on to point out our value to God. He says we are purchased, we are ransomed at a very high and personal cost. Remember he said it wasn't with silver and gold, it was with the blood of Christ himself. 
in order to, to rescue us from the empty sort of life that us humans know all too well, the Father sent Jesus Christ as a sacrificial lamb paying the debt of our sin. That's the picture that Peter wants to make very clear in our minds. Like there was a sacrifice made here. There was a shedding of blood that covered over our sins, that, that led to the remission of our sin, but it was costly. It was the costly, precious blood of Jesus. Jesus' blood shed on the cross, it paid the penalty for our deeply rooted rebellion. Jesus' blood shed on the cross, it paid the penalty of rebellion, it covered our guilt, and it made available to us forgiveness and reconciliation to God. I love that. We weren't just forgiven. There's the cross and then there's the empty tomb. We were forgiven by the shedding of Jesus' blood, but in the power of His resurrection, we are reconciled to God. And that's next level to me. Yes, we're forgiven. God's not mad at us anymore if we've placed our faith in Jesus. He's not going to come and just punch us right in the face anymore. Great. But He went to the next level. He took it to the next step and He said, Now... You belong here. You're welcome in my family. You have a place in my home. You belong here. So we've been forgiven of our sins, but we've also been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. So there's two meaningful things here. The first is that the ransom, the ransom paid, which was Jesus Christ's blood, is more precious than gold and silver. Does that literally mean gold and silver? Or is that a symbol of all the most precious things in the world? What Jesus, uh, His shed blood, what Jesus paid for you is far more precious than anything on earth, gold or silver. And two, God chose to pay it before the world began. What does that mean? God chose to pay this precious ransom of His Son's blood. He decided, chose to do that before the foundation of the world. Guys, it tells me it's not causal. It's not transactional. It's not like, okay, you did just enough to merit this. You did uh, just enough to earn this. So here's what I'm going to do, guys. God gets out the whiteboard and He's like, okay, here's Jesus. Here's you. I'm going to do this. You know, it's like running a play or something. No, before the world was made... God had decided it's worth it, and this is what I'll do. That your salvation, your coming to faith in Jesus was orchestrated through the work of the Holy Spirit from time immemorial. I mean, guys, this elevates it in my mind. It wasn't about me doing this thing, walking this aisle, praying this prayer, doing this thing, and then uh, not cussing. That made Jesus be like, okay, okay, I'll shed some blood for that kid. <laughs> Look at him. You know, uh, from the foundation of the world... God chose to pay this precious ransom. How does this make you feel? I mean, if you sit with that for a second, that what God paid for the, your redemption, for your salvation, was far more precious than silver or gold, and He had decided to do it before the world was even made. Let that just kind of wash over you for a second. What does that make you feel like? How welcome does that make you feel in the presence of God? God, who has all the gold and silver in the world, He chose to spend something of even greater worth, His own Son's blood, to seek and to save all that was lost, which includes you and me. I heard this story about a meteorite that astronomers, and I don't know how they do this. I'm a skeptic, I guess. But anyway, there's this meteorite bigger than like New York City. I mean, it's huge, I guess. Zipping around in space, and astronomers say, 
that meteorite is made of pure diamond. It's like if we could mine that thing, everybody on Earth would get like a trillion dollars worth of diamonds. Which the economist to me is like, if everyone had that much diamonds, diamonds wouldn't be worth anything. And so the price would plummet. And yeah. But anyway, God made a meteorite out of diamonds and it's just being wasted out there in space. Clearly, our valuing of silver and gold and of things like diamonds mean nothing to God. He's like, that stuff has no value to me. What has infinite value is the price that my son would pay in shedding his blood to redeem my children, to bring them back home to me. Amen. That's worth more than any diamond. I mean, even that meteorite landed in your backyard, and you're like, I'm the king of meteorite diamonds. That still wouldn't be more valuable than what Christ did for you in the shedding of his blood. It ransomed you, and it brought you back home. This wasn't haphazard. God was not managing a crisis that, that emerged. Okay, I think this is important. Sometimes we get stuck in thinking that God had this perfect plan. Adam and Eve ate the banana or the other fruit. Did you know the Bible never says it's an apple? Could have been a banana. And I think that's kind of funny to think that they were like <laughs> peeling a banana. In the, anyway, um, what happened in the deception of the, the, of the Hasatan, you know, coming in this form of a serpent and deceiving Adam and Eve, the forebears of all mankind, into sinning, God wasn't like, oh no, what are we going to do? Back to the whiteboard, you know. <laughs> okay, here we go, guys. This was not haphazard. This was not crisis management. It was part of what God intended to do even before speaking the universe into existence. And this is a whole other conversation, right? That God knew as a father that having children would bring heartache. That having children would bring difficulty. But in the end, it, would, it was totally worth it. Any of you who have been parents, you knew, maybe now in retrospect, that your kids would do things that would break your ever-loving heart. Your kids would betray you. Your kids would hurt you. They would be thankless about all the sacrifices you made for them. Yet, none of us say, you know what? I probably shouldn't have had, had these kids. I probably should not have had any of these children. They are such a headache. I mean, if you say that, you're a bad parent. I'm just going to go right in there. I mean, if you think, you know what? I probably should have not done this. No, there's this durable bond, this durable commitment to our children that says, hey, no matter what they're going to do, I will make a way for them to belong in my family, for us to be in relationship, and to be, uh, for us to enjoy love with each other. Whatever it takes. And for me, that helps it make sense. How was God before the beginning of the world, before all the carnage of sin, how did He decide this ahead of time? I think it has to go back to His Father's heart. He said, regardless of all the sin, regardless of all the carnage and the pain, it's going to be worth it. I would not like to be, uh, I would not to, I don't want to be ruling and reigning over this creation in any other way. I want my children to belong to me, regardless of the cost. It is worth it. Does that make sense to you? I mean, because sometimes I run up against that, like, how did God, if God knew, why didn't he just not do it? Well, it has to be because he thought it was worth it. He thought you were worth it. From the foundation of the world, his plan was in place for Christ to pay the ransom.
I don't even know where I am in my notes now. That was not in my notes at all. Let's see here. Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, think about how important God's saving activity in Christ is, how meaningful it is. God wanted us in his family enough that despite knowing we would turn away, he planned from the beginning to save us. He went on ahead to where we would be and put in place a plan to save us. Sensing God's extravagant love, how can we refuse to pursue, to pursue a life that honors and pleases Him? Knowing all that Christ has done for you, all the Father has done for you in Christ, how can we live any other way? Really, I mean, is it not our right, truest response to live a life of obedience and gratitude? Is there really anything worth keeping us from prioritizing behaviors and characteristics that resemble Jesus more and more in our lives today? What's more important? What's more urgent? When we come to terms with God, when we come to terms with what God has accomplished in and through Jesus Christ, we find ourselves inclined to live each day anticipating Jesus Christ's return. In light of Jesus' imminent return, then, we are to live our days now pursuing holy living. We are to live our days now mindful of the ransom paid by Christ to save us from what? From sin and empty living. Okay, verses 20 and 21, and we'll finish up here. God chose him, Jesus, as your ransom long before the world began, but he has now revealed him to you in these last days. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave, you, gave him great glory. So here, as, as Peter is gathering up the threads of his thoughts, he reemphasizes Christ as the centerpiece. Christ is the author and the perfecter of your faith. He said some challenging things, some things that challenge us in our thinking and maybe some of our assumptions. So he wants to draw our attention back to the example of our faith and to the goal of our faith, which is Jesus our, himself. Through him, you have come to trust God. There's no other way. You only come to trust in God through faith in Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, you have come to trust God. You have placed your faith and your hope in God by the power of Christ's resurrection. Now, together, we can glorify him. Because of our standing, because of what Christ has done for us, now we have opportunity to actually glorify God through how we live our lives. And now it's easy to get tripped up uh, trying to be holy. Be holy as, as God is holy. I mean, ugh. we can really get tripped up in trying to be holy in our own strength. To be good enough, we can end up chasing our tails by trying to be obedient enough to earn our place with God. But here, Peter makes it clear. Through Christ alone, we are able to come to trust in God. In Him, we live and move and have our being. No one else. Only through Christ are we able to come to trust in God. Praise the one who raised Christ from the dead, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. All glory to the God who saves. In light of Jesus' imminent return, we are to live our days now pursuing holy living and mindful of the ransom paid by Christ to save us from sin and empty living. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to look to a passage of Scripture from the writer of Hebrews as our closing meditation. So if you would, you can turn there, or you can just close your eyes and follow along. But let this be our closing meditation for this time in the Word. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 12.
Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. And have you forgotten the encouraging word God spoke to you as his children? He said, My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline, and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and you're not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom that through your Holy Spirit, Peter was able to share with our brothers and sisters so long ago, but is able to share with us here today. God, the call is the same. The price paid is the same. And our response is one of obedience, uh, a pursuit of righteous living. So God, I pray that you would let us, uh, lead us to that, that, that place of, of right, healthy balance, of understanding that it's not up to us, but it lies before us as an opportunity. An opportunity, an invitation for us to live each and every day of our lives, looking to Jesus as our example, setting up Jesus as the goal of how we live, of what we're striving to become like, and in doing so, knowing that we are welcome with you, and that through a life spent pursuing obedience, a life spent pursuing Jesus brings you glory. So God, may our lives, in, the, in, our, in our own unique ways, bring you glory today. God, I pray that you would help each and every person here decide in their hearts that this week they will prioritize the things that mattered most to Jesus and the things that matter most to you. God, may we be mindful of that great ransom that Jesus paid for us in the shedding of his blood, that precious blood. But then may that motivate us to eagerly pursue and prepare ourselves to be outfitted for that day when Jesus Christ will be unveiled before us, when he will return to us and he will make all things new. Lord, we need you. You've called us to, a, to such a high calling. God, I pray that we would surrender to the work of your Holy Spirit so that it might be realized in us today. And may you receive all the glory and all the praise because of Jesus. Lord, hear our prayers, we ask. 
Hey, would you sit for a minute with it? Maybe have a conversation with the Lord. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand how you ought to live this week. What opportunities lie before you this week? We belong to God through faith in Jesus. We're part of His family and we can bring Him glory. So use this time well. Sit with the Lord and make the most of this opportunity.